Well, good morning, church. Good to see you all this morning. If you have a Bible with you, open up to the book of Numbers. We're going to be in Numbers chapter 11. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can read along. We'll have the scriptures uh, on the screens for you today. We are continuing our series called Dwell. We are looking at how God came to dwell among his people, among the Israelites as he led them out of Egypt. He is now literally physically present with them and manifesting his presence among them in a very unique and special way. And so that's really the whole point of this series is looking at how that happened and what the implications are for not just them then, but us today. And so Numbers 11 is a fascinating part of this grand story. So let me pray for us and uh, then we will dig right in. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have the word of God. We thank you that you are our king and you are our savior. Lord, I can't help but think as we are talking a lot today about ancient Israel. Lord, many of us have been watching the news and we have seen the present day turmoil in present Israel. So Lord, we pray that your righteousness, your goodness, and your peace would reign over that conflict. Lord, we pray that you would help us today to understand how these ancient truths apply directly to our hearts today. Lord, this is not easy for us to think through some of these things, but we know, we know that you love us and that you are guiding us to a better place. Help us to see that today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So according to the 2023 World Happiness Report, which ranks countries according to how happy their citizens say that they are, uh, the United States, we rank 15th on that list. So, okay, like not, not too bad, but we could probably do better, guys. Okay, let's do a little better here. Uh, interestingly, though, guess, guess which country was number one? Finland. All right. What is this? The Winter Olympics? Like, how are they number one and we're in 15th place? All right. It's way too cold there for me to be happy but I'm happy that they're happy, or I'm happy for them. Um, so no offense if you're from Finland, by the way. Um, in relation, it's great. In relation, a recent Gallup survey found that 83% of Americans are generally satisfied with their personal lives. But when the question got more specific and asked, are you very satisfied with your personal life? It dropped down to 50%. All right, so only 50% of Americans would say they are very satisfied with their personal lives. Now, there are a lot of different metrics, all right, and, and uh, that were used to measure these findings, and you can look it up and Google it yourself. But so it's hard to evaluate how happy or how satisfied someone thinks they may be or they really are, but they, you know, the metrics were interesting that they used here. You know, but it's an age-old question. It's an age-old question, what does, what does really, what really makes us satisfied, right? What brings us happiness in life? What is the answer to that, right? And, and what, about, what about the discontentment, the other side of that, right? If 50% of us say we're very satisfied with our personal lives, what about the other 50? What about the discontentment and the fear and the anxiety and the unsatisfaction that many of us feel in our personal lives? Well, today... 
in Numbers chapter 11, believe it or not, we are going to see something very, very significant and true about what it means to really be satisfied. What satisfaction really means, how to find it, where it's truly found, and how to experience it. So as we look uh, to Numbers 11, I want to recap real quick. Last week, all right, last week we saw that Israel was on the move. They were beginning their long journey to Canaan, which was the land that God promised to give his people. And the most amazing thing about all of this is that, as our series says, dwell, God was dwelling with them, right? God was with Israel every single place they went. And so we saw that last week, literally in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. God was with them. So they had his blessing, right? They had his instruction. They had his guidance and they could trust him no matter what came their way. That's great, right? They have everything they need to succeed on this journey, this long trip to the promised land. All right, so that brings us to number chapter Numbers 11, verse 1. All right, they've got God, they have his blessing, they're ready to go. Verse 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. What? Wait a second. I mean, this is like when you get in the car with your kids to go on vacation and you don't even get out of your neighborhood and they're already complaining, right? It's like Moses had to be like, are y'all serious right now? What are you doing? Why are you complaining right now? You were just delivered from 400 years of slavery and oppression. You were just miraculously saved from Pharaoh's army. You were just given this clear instruction from God himself on how to live for him in this world. And most of all, God himself is here. He's with us. Like, look over there, guys. There he is, right? And you're complaining? What are you complaining about? Your misfortunes? What misfortunes are you even talking about? I think they needed to redefine or reevaluate how they define the word misfortune. Yes, they are in a wilderness. Okay, we'll give them that. But instead of looking to the blessings that they've already received and that they are receiving in God, in his presence, instead of looking to their blessings, what do they do? They just turn their focus to their minor discomforts. All right, let's keep reading verse 1. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So let this be clear. Being ungrateful, if we are ungrateful to God, that is rebellion against God. An ungrateful spirit for the blessings of God is rebellion against God. Because here's why. It's a way of saying, hey, God, um, I don't really appreciate or like the way that you are handling my life right now. I, I don't really agree with how you have my life going right now. So God is not going to tolerate this among his people whom he has already done so many wonderful things for. So he sends his judgment and discipline against them, and it is fully warranted. This is an all-out rebellion, right? Now, verse 4. Now, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. 
keyword, craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength has dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. I read that dramatically because I feel like that's how they read. I feel like that's what they sounded like, right? Just, you know, just complaining children to their father, God, right? It's just, oh, we're so hungry. If only we had some meat, right? So get this now, one year before, one year before this episode, right after Israel had been freed from Egypt, the people complained then too about being hungry, okay? So they, these people want their food, all right? So God graciously gave them, a year before, he graciously gave them a provision, a daily provision of food, which they called manna, M-A-N-N-A, manna, to eat and nourish them on their journey, all right? Well, manna was kind of this this fine flake-like substance that would appear on the ground miraculously from God uh, in the morning time. Well, now they're tired of it. They are tired of eating the manna. They want something different. They want a different menu, right? And so they start daydreaming. They start daydreaming about their past food that they had in Egypt. And they remember that, oh, we had fish and we had melons and leeks. And I mean, who likes leeks, right? And it costs nothing. It says they cost nothing. And that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous for them to say that it cost nothing. It cost you your freedom, Have you quickly forgotten that you were slaves in Egypt? You may have had a full belly in Egypt, but you were enslaved. You were not free. You were not truly happy and satisfied. You cried out to God then to deliver you from slavery. You were living under oppression and bondage. So how could they say such a thing in this moment? Just because they're a little hungry. Moses is frustrated. So Moses asks God this, look at verse 13. He says, where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. So what does the Lord have to say back to Moses? Verse 18, Lord, and say to the people, this is God speaking. He says, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. Now remember, to be ungrateful, to be ungrateful for and to complain about the blessings of God has already, that, that has already given a rejection, right? That is a rejection of his authority over our lives. Specifically though, for Israel here, It is downright blasphemous to declare that God's amazing salvation was not enough for you. That somehow God messed up, right? Somehow he made a mistake and didn't give you the full menu that you deserve, right? And didn't put you where you need to be. So God is not okay with his people acting like this, believing this lie, right? He is not okay with the people that he has chosen and brought out of freedom, out of oppression and freed, right? To represent him in this world. He's not okay with them living like this and believing this. So God is about to course correct. He is about to discipline them here in a highly ironic way. He's going to give them, get this, he's going to give them exactly what they want. 
He's going to give them exactly what they're asking for. He's going to give them meat. And let me tell you, it's not just the little six-ounce sirloin, the Outback special. Okay, this is like going to put the buffet at Golden Corral to shame. Okay, this is what he's doing. He's going to give them, right? He's going to say, listen, if you thought... If you thought this would be good for you, well, let's find out. Let's find out, will this actually satisfy what you want? Look at verse 19. Numbers eleven nineteen. You shall, this is God speaking, you shall not eat just one day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days, but a whole month until, I love this, until it comes out at your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you, because the Lord is stating the case and giving them the reason, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? In other words, God says, you want meat? Well, here you go. Let's see if satisfying your unhealthy craving, if that is actually going to make you feel better about your life. Now we'll move down to verse 31. For sake of time, we see how this actually plays out. Verse 31, Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp. About a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. That's about three feet, about three feet tall. And so the people, right, and the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail Those who gathered least gathered 10 homers, which is a lot, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp while the meat was yet between their teeth. Before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibrath Hatava because there they buried the people who had the craving. In Hebrew, Kibrath Hatava means graves of craving. Graves of craving. You see, the very thing The very thing they thought they needed is the very thing that cost them their lives. How ironic is that? So the Lord brought judgment against this rebellion and he squashes it. He squashes it so everyone left will know and will see who is actually in charge and not not what, but who they should really be craving. I think we may be a little more like the Israelites here in this story than we realize. And the Apostle Paul thought so too. Speaking of Israel's wilderness episodes, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. Look on the screen. 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says, now these things, in other words, all these things that happened in the wilderness with the Israelites, he says these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So, He says, verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. You see, Paul says, this is interesting, right? Paul says that idolatry, idolatry was the real problem here and that we can learn from their example. You see, 
Idolatry is not as much an external issue as it is an internal issue. It's not as much about whatever you imagine in your mind of idolatry being. It's not about you bowing down to a statue, all right? It's not about you bowing down to a statue or something like that or a false god. It is more of a heart problem within us. Idolatry is really about our heart satisfaction, our heart's contentment or lack thereof. Did you notice verse 4 in our story said, the people had a strong craving. Now on the surface, right, on the surface, the craving was for better food, right? We just want some meat. We're tired of eating this manna, this bread that God has given us. But you see, there's a much deeper problem beneath the surface, a deeper craving they had. It was a craving for satisfaction. It was a craving for comfort. It was a craving for security. It was a craving for joy. And those things in and of themselves are not bad things. But they had made them ultimate things, and they were not turning to God for fulfillment in them. They were turning to other things, to food. God should have been. God himself should have been their ultimate craving. God himself should have been the source of fulfillment and satisfaction. Now, for most of us, or maybe some of us, our greatest concern is not walking into the kitchen and opening the fridge and wondering, hey, where's the meat, right? I mean, if that is your greatest concern in life right now, I don't know. Your life is pretty easy, okay? But for most of us, right, for most of us today, we have different questions than where's the meat, right? We have different questions than Israel had that day. We have questions like, gosh, how am I going to afford this? How, how is my marriage going to make it for the long haul? How, how am I going to give my kids a better life? How am I going to finally get the recognition that I deserve at my job? How am I going to get through this sickness? It's different questions, but the answer is often the same. What's going to be the thing that gives us what we want? Something besides God. You see, that's idolatry. Looking to anything. Idolatry is simply looking to anything besides God to give you what only God can give you. That's it. It's looking to anything in this world, anything at all. And it may not be tangible, right? It may just be admiration. It may be the approval of others and the respect of others. Whatever it is, it's looking to that thing that you must have, that you cannot live without, when really only God can give it to you. But what we're really asking in all of these questions is, am I satisfied? Am I really satisfied with how my life is going? Pastor John Piper has famously said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God created us to be satisfied in him. He created us to love him above all things and truly find fulfillment in him. And so he actually gets the most glory when that is actually happening in our lives. And so the question that we need to ask today, the main question that we need to ask, am I finding my ultimate satisfaction in God? That's the question. We all, as human beings, need to be able to answer this question. Am I finding my ultimate satisfaction in God? And so to answer that question, I want to actually give us four diagnostic questions or sub-questions to answer to answer the main one. Uh, so three are going to kind of deal with our negative behaviors, and then one, the last one, with a, a positive aspect, all right? 
So here's some diagnostic questions to answer the main question. Are you really finding your ultimate satisfaction in God? All right, well, number one, ask yourself this. Am I complaining a lot? Am I complaining a lot? Now, listen, I'm not talking about just silly complaints like, hey, I, could you guys take my steak back? I think it, there's too much red in the middle, right? Or, you know, it's, it's too cold in the sanctuary. Can y'all turn the air up, right? Nobody ever says that. Uh, but serious... <laughs> But serious discontentment, okay? Serious discontentment in our lives is is bubbling to the surface in our words, right? And, And so the real complaints of our life, man, I just, we need more money, right? I need a better relationship. I just need more time. I don't have enough time to get the things done that I wanna do. These these questions or these complaints, I should say, these complaints that we have are really being driven by something deeper in your heart, some craving that you have. And if we're looking, if we're looking to anything else besides God for ultimate life satisfaction, then here's what you're going to find. You will find yourself complaining a lot more often about some of those deeper things in life. And well, maybe some of the trivial ones too. Because those things, a lot of the things in life that we try to squeeze happiness out of and joy out of, they always overpromise and underdeliver, don't they? They always overpromise and underdeliver. Pastor Tim Chester says, "We grumble, we grumble or complain when we lose perspective." I agree with that. That's what happened with Israel. The people grew ungrateful. In Numbers 11, the people grew ungrateful because they took their eyes off the Lord. They took their eyes off of his blessing and off of his presence. Instead, what did they do? They turned their attention to their little discomfort and their circumstances, and they forget, they quickly forget God's blessing. They already have his presence, his guidance, his protection, his provision. So when we start to complain a lot, about where we are in life, the season of life you're in that you're not happy with, that's a sure sign that you're feeling the same way the Israelites did. Hey God, hey God, I don't like the way my life is going. In fact, I don't think that you are managing it well, so I'm just gonna manage it from this point forward. That's essentially it. You may never say that with your words, but that is exactly what our hearts believe. Complaining, real complaining about our lives happens when we think we know better than God when we think there's a better place we should be than where he has us. So let me ask you, question number one, what have you been complaining about recently? All right, question number two, am I spiritually disoriented? You're like, what does that mean? Well, this is kind of, this is kind of sequential, okay? The more we complain, right? The more we complain, the more disoriented we become. Now, what do I mean by being spiritually disoriented? It's when, like the Israelites in this story, they confused, they began to confuse what was actually good for them with what is harmful for them. You see, that's what discontentment with your life in God does, right? You start to confuse what is good for you versus what is actually bad for you. Look at verse five and six again of Numbers 11. They cried out, they're they're just complaining, complaining, and they say, we remember the fish, Remember the fish, guys, we had in Egypt that cost nothing? And I already pointed out, right? It cost you your freedom. What are you talking about? And now they say, well, our strength has dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. So do you see what's happening? Something that was horrific and terrible and evil against them, all of a sudden they are confused and they're starting to glorify that. 
And the good thing, the manna that God had given them to provide for them and sustain their nutrition and their strength and their ability to carry on and protect them with his presence, they're looking at that now and saying it is a bad thing. They have completely swapped what is good versus what is bad. Do you see it is spiritual disorientation? It is spiritual confusion. That is exactly the power of sin. That is what sin, rebellion against God in any form in your life, that's what it does. That is what it does to you. It alters our thinking. It alters our psychology in our minds. It really does. It makes us start to call good things bad and bad things good. And so let me ask you, are you in a place of spiritual disorientation? In other words, are you thinking all of a sudden in your life that the grass is greener somewhere else with something else or someone else? Are you thinking the grass is greener? What part of your life are you saying, if I only had more of this, right? Or if only this was different, I'd be happy. God, I know better than you. This isn't good for me. This other thing is good for me. That is spiritual disorientation, spiritual confusion. That's exactly a symptom of not being satisfied in God. All right, number three, third diagnostic question. Are my idols actually satisfying me? Are the things I'm chasing after, so let's say you do try to chase after the grass that's greener supposedly on the other side. Let's say you get to that other side and then when you're experiencing the thing that you thought you needed to make you happy, is it actually, is it really? You see, the Lord judged and disciplined his people in Numbers 11 by giving them exactly what they wanted. Why is he doing it that way? He is teaching them a lifelong lesson, especially the ones who survived and then allowing them to suffer the natural consequences. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And we have to just be frank with ourselves today. Could that be, could that be what's happening in your life right now? We're all on different journeys. We're all in different places in life. Under different circumstances, your context is not the same as the person you're sitting next to necessarily, but we could all be somewhere on this path if we're not careful. Could your life be heading to ruin and destruction because you are seeking to find satisfaction in something or someone else other than God himself? In other words, are there areas of your life where you have traded the eternal goodness of God and the security of God for just some kind of temporary pleasure? And you experience that temporary pleasure, and what do you do? You just feel empty. It's not working. You just feel empty inside. So you come back to it, but then you feel empty again. It's addiction. That's what addiction does of any form, whether it be drugs, right, pornography, it doesn't matter. Addiction tells you that you have to have this thing to make you feel good, and then you get it, and then, what, and then a few minutes later, or a couple of days later, you're, you're feeling empty again. You need it again. It's a never-ending vicious cycle. Ironically, Have the things that you thought would bring you joy, have they actually turned out to bring you dissatisfaction or even misery? You know, our own local news station, News 4 Jacks, the local station, uh, recently featured an article about how winning the lottery uh, actually may ruin your life. Did you know this? Listen to this. 
70% of lottery winners go bankrupt. They say, one reason the lottery, winning the lottery will ruin your life. Now, I know we always, we always joke, right? We always, oh, well, when I win the lottery, you know, we'll do, right? Well, everyone, they say, everyone's going to ask you for money, right? People, all of a sudden, your friends from high school, you haven't talked to, hey, man, good to see you. Hey, I got a favor to ask you, right? You, they say you may become targeted, right? I mean, someone could try it if they know. And then in Florida, we release the names. So they're going to know who you are. They may target you and, and rob you or steal from you. They say it will strain your relationships, In other words, people get, they win the lottery and for many, 70%, their lives end up being ruined. Now, we all know someone here in town, right, won that Powerball lottery a few months back. They haven't released the name publicly yet. I do want to say, if that's you and you're here today, would you see me after the service? I have to ask you a question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Kidding. (laughs) Uh, All right, so here's the thing, right? We joke a lot about this and we, we make fun, but it's, it's a real stat. I mean, we're really looking here at people who thought they had everything they ever wanted. They got the car, they got the house, they took the luxurious vacations, and in the end, they felt terrible. Their lives were ruined. First Timothy chapter six, verses six through 10, the apostle Paul, he says, but godliness Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this, interesting word, right? Craving. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Our deepest cravings, our deepest cravings may just be in the end what ruins us. So the question you have to ask yourself Are the idols of my heart, are they actually bringing to me what they have promised? Are they delivering on the promise? And the answer is almost always no. And if it is yes, to some degree, it's temporary. And in the end, it's no. Fourth diagnostic question. And this one is the positive one. Am I truly grateful? Am I truly grateful for Jesus and his gospel? See, this is where it all comes together. Because one of the Israelites' descendants, about 1,400 years later, would come to earth, fully God, fully man, Jesus Christ. And he would go into a wilderness after his baptism, and he would do what Israel failed to do. He would represent us in the wilderness leading to the cross where he would represent us yet again. Look what happened. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. This is after Jesus' baptism. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, get this, he was hungry. 
Now, the Israelites were hungry, and what did they do? They complained. They forgot who they were as God's people. They forgot their identity. They thought something else would bring them the pleasure they wanted, but Jesus was hungry. Verse 3, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, in John chapter 6, we see an amazing story where Jesus feeds many, many thousands of people And there's some correlation in John chapter 6 that is just amazing. And and, and I encourage you to go home and read the whole chapter. We don't have time to read the whole chapter today. But look at verse 31. John chapter 6, verse 31 through 35. The people said, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. They're thinking, oh, this sounds great. We'll never be hungry again. We won't have to complain about our lack of menu. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The empty feeling that you're living with, that empty feeling, that dry feeling where you just feel spiritually drained, spiritually dry. You feel like you cannot connect with God. Maybe you can't connect with others around you that you love. That feeling that you have is pointing to some kind of complaint, some kind of spiritual disorientation. It is pointing to some kind of idol in your heart that you are chasing after to give you what only the bread of life can give you. We quickly become ungrateful, don't we? We quickly forget what Jesus has done for us, who he really is and what he's really done. Jesus said he is the bread of heaven that we must crave. You see, this word crave is interesting because Jesus, you know what he really did? He died for our cravings. All the sinful, impure motivations of your heart, every single time you have done anything or thought anything or felt any feeling that you thought, in the moment that God was was not enough, that what he had given you, his blessings all around you that you completely ignore is not enough any time we've ever thought that God was not enough and we craved some other worldly passion or pursuit or desire to give us what only he can give when Jesus died on the cross. He died for all of those sinful cravings of your heart, every single one to the bottom. And in return, as he paid for your sin, he gives you his life. He gives you the bread that never leaves you hungry. He gives you the joy, the security, the peace in knowing that you have an eternal future that never leaves you without, that never leaves you wanting, that never leaves you lacking. 
If you're a child of God here this morning, if you follow Jesus Christ, do you know how often during the day do you spend time thinking about the fact that you have the eternal riches of heaven as your inheritance? And when you pass away, that's exactly what you're going to receive. What more could you want? Jesus died for our cravings instead of us. Instead of us dying for them eternally so that we don't have to be enslaved. We don't have to be controlled by our cravings. We don't have to let our gut or our mind or our heart control our actions. We don't have to let it be. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, we know. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Our old cravings, the old person we used to be, in order why? That the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to it, right? To sin. Verse, and then he says, verse 12, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin. Listen to this. If you're struggling with some kind of addictive pattern of sin or thought or feeling in your heart right now, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. In Christ Jesus, you can be free. Pastor Tim Chester, to quote him again, he says, it's a little lengthy quote, but it's good. I want to share it with you. He says, Jesus doesn't always give us what we want, but he meets our deepest needs. Jesus gives us himself, and that is a gift that endures beyond death. We look for satisfaction in wealth, but wealth corrodes. We look for satisfaction in our careers, but at best, careers end in retirement. We look for satisfaction in the admiration of others, but our looks fade, or our powers decline, or someone more admirable comes along. We look for satisfaction in relationships, but people betray us, or we're left bereaved. Even when, even when these things endure, we don't. We die. And death robs us of all the things for which we have lived, for we take none of it with us. There's only one exception, and that is Jesus. Death does not rob of Jesus. Quite the opposite. It opens the door to a greater experience of his glory. Look to Jesus to be enough for you, and there will never, ever come a day when he is not enough. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul said, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So let me ask you today, where are you really looking 
to satisfy your soul. The deep longings of your heart may not be bad in and of themselves. And I want to be clear on that. It's not bad to want to be happy. It's not bad to want to feel secure. It's not bad to want your future to be taken care of. But those things become bad. They become sinful when we hold them up above God and say, I must have this and I must have it this way. And I must have it now. Are you really looking to the Lord for true satisfaction? Can you look at the gospel of Jesus Christ every day and in the quiet, still moment of your heart, can you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you have loved me. Thank you that you know everything about me. You know everything about me. Things, people, things other people don't even know. You know everything about me, every thought I've ever had, and yet you love me. You love me deeply, more deeply than I could ever imagine. When you know that you're loved that way, you don't have to manipulate your life. When you know that you have the security of God, when you know that you have the peace of God, you don't have to look to other things. You'll be tempted to do it. But if you keep coming to that quiet, still moment of your heart on a daily basis and you dwell on the gospel of Jesus Christ, the riches you've been given in his name, that's the power, that's the strength that the Holy Spirit will use to guide your heart to a better place. Are you happy today? You may not be. You may be feeling very unsatisfied. But what I want you to know is that there's a better way, the only way, through Jesus Christ.